Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. Hey, um, happy new year almost. Pretty much, real close, possibly by the time anyone hears this. That's right. Uh, it's good to see you in person, even though we tried to do a recording in the same room, but we don't know how microphones work enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, we've been unwilling to spend sufficient money on microphones. Yeah, so you're in my house, but we ended up having to move you to a separate room and it kind of defeated the whole purpose of yeah. you coming over. <laughs> yep. Um, so today we're going to do kind of a quick hit style show for the end of the year, right? What I've got open in front of me is our list of episodes. And we've been kind of building up feedback from listeners and from discussions offline. And I think we have just stuff to say about our past, you know, our past shows, just kind of a follow-ups and corrections or additions or whatever, right? We'll find out. Let's start with our in our lovely alphabet. Episode 4.2, we talked about the Deseret alphabet. That one's pretty recent. We did. Yeah. I think we got, everything we said is still true. Everything is Am good there. Nope. <laughs> but we got some great com feedback from one of our Discord um, listeners that I wanted to share. Um, and this is a great place to put in. So Discord is a great place to put stuff for um, if you want to feedback to us, right? This is from Kent. Uh, Kent said that he was surprised that we didn't cover the use of the Deseret alphabet as a test alphabet for Unicode, which is why it's included. They needed an alphabet that no one would complain about if Unicode messed it up. So we talked about Unicode and how the alphabet is um, permanent now because it's in there. But um, yeah, if you go in and read these old papers um, that talk about why it was added to the, to the Unicode, it is an excellent way to test if your machine is rendering fonts properly. See, I had no idea that was true. <laughs> so there you go. I, I had never heard that before. Extra bit of trivia. And Todd from Discord also provided some PDF files in the show notes from papers from this era, if you want to look more, in, more into it. It's pretty cool. Okay. What's next? Well, do you want to do some of the finance stuff? Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and revisit our season one episode, debts and outlays. There was a statement of the from the church in 2018 on um, about its finances. Uh, there we covered a common consent article called um, LDS Inc. Right. Um, and then we talked about money as debt. And the idea was to talk about how the church uses its money. But what we haven't talked about is what happened in. Uh, early was it when was this early um uh the whistle whistleblower december 2019 oh it's just before the pandemic yep december 2019 a whistleblower claims that the lds church stockpiled a hundred billion dollars in charitable donations and dodged taxes this is in the salt lake tribune you can't dot okay that's dumb but go ahead <laughs> go, <laughs> go ahead no you go first well i mean a a church can't dodge taxes. Like that's not really how it works. Uh -huh. Yeah. We, so this happened after we recorded our finance episode and we've never gone back to it. And I think it's relevant. Oh, you know, it's also kind of relevant to this in a way is the recent news that um, the Utah legislature is counting all the money the church spends on welfare towards their federal requirements to spend money on welfare. Did you read about that? No, go ahead. Um, well, I'm, I'm, that's essentially the summary. There's a loophole in federal law where states and, and a number of conservative states do this, not just Utah, 
can count church welfare expenditures towards the state's total in order to qualify for federal whatever whatever huh. um, and is that going away or well it's controversial now that people are paying attention to it but uh, i doubt it's going away okay because it's very difficult to change anything of that sort at the federal level uh-huh so the original report came out in the washington post um let's see this was released on december 17th 2019 a former investment manager alleges in a whistleblower complaint to the IRS that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has amassed about $100 billion in accounts intended for charitable purposes. The confidential document received November 21st accuses church leaders of misleading members and, by, and possibly breaching federal tax rules by stockpiling their surplus donations instead of using them from charitable works. Um, and so the idea is that we have this huge portfolio in stocks and bonds, right? Properties and things that the total amount of it is adds up to $100 billion. And none of it is used for the kind of expenses that you would expect yeah. the, church, the church to be using. So, which includes building new buildings, um, running um, missions, uh, and doing welfare that kind of thing. Um, and it was a bit of a bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Um, um, I'm going I'm to share a link with you. Um, this fellow, Sam Brunson, is a tax attorney. He is an expert in tax law, and he has written about uh, the church and taxes a number of times. So this came out like a couple, like a week after yeah. the actual um, whistleblower article. Mm -hmm. The name of the fund is Ensign Peak Advisors. This article is by from 2019, December 17th by Sam Brunson. And it's on the website um, by common consent, right? Yes, it is. What um, and... The thing about Sam Brunson, I, I followed him on Twitter for a while, is um, he is actually an expert on a lot of stuff that uh, people love to talk about without being expert in. Um, and in a similar way in which it is helpful to listen to um, you know, epidemiologists when discussing a pandemic rather than your Uncle Joe, mm -hmm. the same thing is true when it comes to issues like the church and taxes. Um, if you, you know, listening to a tax attorney slash tax professor is a pretty, pretty good idea. So uh, he is a law professor specializing in taxes. The, the reason that uh, I brought up Sam at this point is because it is a little absurd to suggest that the church is somehow violating tax law by putting all this money together. That doesn't mean that it's an ethical choice or the correct choice or the New Testament choice or anything else. $100 billion is a lot of money. Um, so uh, it, a, lot of, a lot of the moral questions remain intact just because, just because uh, it's legal doesn't mean it's right. I mean, I feel like we haven't described the problem well enough yet, all right? No, I don't think anybody, well, maybe not nobody, but uh, we haven't, certainly. So... The church takes in, you know, some number of billions of dollars in tithing or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Per year. And we spend some of that, right? 
the temples are expensive to maintain and build. Um, you know, we fund, you know, ward campouts and that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But this is just something else. I mean, the magnitude of difference between some number of billions and a hundred billion <laughs> is such a such a big number. And as far as we know, the church ain't doing nothing with it, right? Yeah, just letting it grow. Just letting it grow. Um, some of these are stocks like in Apple and Microsoft and and Google or Google's Google Alphabet. And some of them are actual holdings like land in Florida, things like that. And it all just adds up to a portfolio of worth a lot of money, right? Okay. So, mm-hmm. yes, I agree. These articles by Sam Brunson are good. And um, I think his, his arguments that the church is above board in its legality and doing and having this money and holding this money, that makes sense, right? Right. I'm looking at an August 21st, 2021 article by Sam Brunson, also on Common Consent, and it says, let's talk about money, right? His opening statement is, I don't have any idea if $100 billion is a good amount for the church to have in its endowment. Personally, I tend to think, given its revenue and expenditures, that the number is high, at least as long as it continues to bring in a significant amount of tithing annually. It feels to me that it doesn't need a quick cushion quite this big. But the thing is, I don't know. Church leaders are completely opaque into how they've made their investment and spending decisions. And to be honest, I suspect that has that it has been a decision only in the loosest sense. Inertia is a powerful force, and decisions made 20 years ago carry a lot of weight. So this is where I wanted to take this conversation. Yes, we don't know why the church has this much money. And yes, it seems to make sense that if the church has this much money, that we should be spending it on things that we have. And it is a real barrier to, I think, missionary work and to um, anybody that knows about this story is going to have a really hard time like writing a tithing check or... Um, you know, volunteering for service projects that only benefit the church, like cleaning the church on Sundays, <laughs> for example. And um, when the, when we have this kind of nest egg, so I just think that we need some context here. And this is going to sound a bit apologetic, but I wanted to put the pros uh, and the context on the side of things. All right, let's remember where the church was 50 years ago, right? And since this is a quick hits episode, recall that not too long ago, we did an episode on the um, building program, right? Which was one of my absolute favorite episodes that we've ever done. We talked about how the church kind of ran out of money. Yeah. That was in the 50s, right? Right. We are just barely past the generation of apostles who were there, just barely. Are in we? the last 10 years. Was pre- yeah. When, Russell and Nelson wasn't called as an apostle until the 80s. And he's okay. our senior apostle. But uh, we had apostles who were there as recently as 10 years ago. Okay. People who were junior apostles at the time. And let's not forget how far back our shared church trauma goes <laughs> for money. Right. <laughs> we have a deep and genetic worry of, I mean, let's remember that Lorenzo Snow really pushed tithing because the church was in debt and church was, or tithing was originally instituted in part to pay debts. Um, that's what 
tithing was expressed for. And it's a law forever. I am, I'm paraphrasing another Sam Brunson article right now, but it's a law, the Doctrine and Covenants says is a law that's for us forever, but um, we're not using it for the original purposes that tithing was instituted for. So uh, it raises a lot of interesting questions about what is tithing for and what is the money for? And, and frankly, and I know I said this in our previous episode back in 2018, but the Doctrine and Covenants really seems to suggest that our finances should be very transparent and they aren't. And I think a lot of these problems would be lessened if there was more transparency. Transparency is not exactly the same thing as honesty, but a lack of transparency feels a lot like a lack of honesty. So even I'm gonna, if it's not the same. It's great. I'm going to keep quoting here from Sam. All right. Arguably, the church should communicate its financial thinking better. And I don't mean that the church needs to tell members exactly how much it has in assets, though it certainly could. But I believe that if the church viewed members as stakeholders, it could and would communicate its thinking to us. What consideration has it made in deciding whether to spend or invest? How did it decide how much it needed for current expenditures and for future expenditures? All right. If we are Zion, we should be more like a co-op, right? We should, uh, we do all have a stake. That's right. I thought that that um, phrasing of it as stakeholders is really interesting. When I give tithing to the church, um, I assume that money's gone, right? I'll never see it again, and I have no idea what it's going to be used for. Yeah. When I give fast offerings to the church, um, I know that those are spent locally first. And because I was a finance clerk, which is one of the focuses of that episode 1.8 or 1.3, I know how we spent our fast offerings in the Berkeley ward. I know I knew like we spent some on counseling and we spent some on rent and we spent some on food and they were, and that was really nice to see that money go by. Right. That was transparency. The details of who got those benefits are of course, anonymous and they are confidential. So the church could never say stuff like that, but what it could say is how much it's doing and what it's going to be spending this money on. I want to quote Sam a bit more. I think there would be a lot of power in church leaders saying, we believe that we need to have a cushion for the next hundred years. Based on our projections, we believe that as in Alma's day, the church is going to go to, is going to grow primarily among the poor. While we have positive revenues today, we have projected that in 20 years we'll be operating at negative cash flow. We debated tapping into our endowment now to reduce tithing or feed the hungry or something else, but we believe that these future needs will be more compelling. Right? Imagine if the church put out a statement like that. Yeah. It would completely obviate. It would change the conversation. Yeah. I mean, this conversation would be over. And personally, that's my internal belief that that's what's happening, that the church is thinking pretty far afield. I like this comment about Alma's day, right? And here Sam is quoting um, Alma 32. And what happens in Alma 32? Those are the poor of the Zoramites. That is not where I was guessing he was. I, th I was thinking he was thinking of Alma Sr. But um, scripture is full of examples of the poor faithful. That's right. Poor and faithful seems to be a natural state of affairs. And so that's why it's interesting to see articles from prominent church members saying, I don't pay tithing and I won't until the church does this, something about this. Yeah. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I'm, I respect where they're coming from, 
right? I think it's probably a counterproductive stance. The church hates being bullied into things. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that for the first time in my life, the first time in my life, um, after that news came out, I had a hard time paying tithing. Uh Never, never a difficult commandment, like super easy. I don't care that much about money. Uh, It's easy come, easy go. But uh, for the first time, I was like, what? what is going on here? I was forced to like, think about it more. And, um, uh, and a lot of people did the same thing and decided not to. You know, I taught a lot of people the gospel when I was in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil in 1997 through 99, a lot of them were poor, right. And a lot of them accepted the gospel and it was a joyful experience when somebody did as part of that teaching, I went through six discussions and you went through the same discussions on your mission. And it's not until discussion number five, where we even talk about tithing, right? We go through several commandments. By the time discussion five comes around, you've talked about Joseph Smith and you've talked about, you know, you've talked about the Book of Mormon and you've talked about, you know, the gospel, the restoration of the priesthood and so forth, eternal families. And the people have been to church and a lot of time they're feeling like they're going to get baptized and they're excited about it. I had exactly zero people on my mission, have any problem with tithing. Zero. Mm -hmm. We taught them the principle. We said it's 10%. They're like, you got it. We had problems with smoking, with the law of chastity, (laughs) people not being married. We had problems with, you know, being lazy, you know, not wanting to go to church on Sundays. Zero people had a problem with tithing. Now that's just my personal experience, but people understand that you get what you pay for. My personal experience. Yeah. I was just going to say that my personal experience is too small of a sample size. I taught maybe three fifth discussions in my entire mission. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so so I, I don't feel qualified to draw generalities. <laughs> Brazil was a different place than Korea, if I remember right. Korea, yes. Um, so, okay. So I agree with all the people that say this is an issue and it really deserves discussion and transparency is really important. You know what I think the problem might be is that we spend a lot of time in church agonizing over the call to sacrifice everything, you know, sell everything and follow me. That sort of, that sort of call like Zion have everything in common among us. You were just agonizing earlier today about moving into a larger house. Yeah. I think this agony is something we as thoughtful readers of scripture necessarily grapple with. And the church is not the same as a member, but it, feels to have a hundred billion dollars stored away feels like not something a person should not do. And if it's something a, a, an individual Christian should not do, it, it's a little, there's, there's a disconnect between, well, I mean, a member is not the same thing as the church, but you know, principles are principles. And I, I think that's where the disconnect is coming from. Like if a person was doing what the church is doing, it would be wrong. Yeah, I think that's true. And so that's why we need more transparency and explanation. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about it. I would like this to be addressed and yeah. it hasn't been, it's been two years now to be fair. The, well, it has been, been but we distracted. <laughs> yeah. Um, the church, uh, Sam Brunson, new friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome aboard, Sam. <laughs> and, and, uh, he gave, uh, there's a tweet that I was just looking at a minute ago and I'm not gonna be able to find now but he was responding to the church's response to what was to what had been 
said, like to, to the article after it dropped. And it was um, basically it was the church had a, a, had a series of uh, press releases. And Sam's main takeaway was that these aren't addressing the actual problems. The church in those talked about how much, how many billions it's given away to charity, which is true. Um, but giving away liquid money at the, at the rate of about $64 million a year or something, I think it worked out to, is not the same as having a $100 billion slush fund that mm -hmm. is going unused. Um, so the church didn't really address the difficulties with the $100 billion. I'll, I'll find that and we'll add it to the show notes so you can see what Sam said about that. Okay, that sounds great. Um, shall we just, as we end this semi-quit hit, mention um, the Good Shepherds? Uh, dear listener, <laughs> someone wrote a musical about this and it's it's available. You can go listen to songs from it. Um, in the process of being put on in Ogden. So yeah, called the Good Shepherds. And they're, um, what's fun about their website is on their about page, which we'll put in the show, no show notes, they cite a bunch of articles as sources. So about the show, the Good Shepherd, this is on thegoodshepherds.net. The Good Shepherds is an immersive musical journey centered around humanity and redemption and how hoarding unimaginable wealth takes tragic precedence over human needs, especially within ultra wealthy Christian churches. The projection, and okay, and then <laughs> the summary is new recruits at Mormon Inc. get a taste of endless cash. And then there's a bunch of sources, uh, including these whistleblower stuff and, you know, more recent sources. So anyway, it's there. You can listen to a few of the songs if you'd like. I just want to say that this is not uh, an endorsement. <laughs> there are very <laughs> few, few musicals I like to start with. And um, and I have no reason to believe that this one will, will make me like it more. I was fascinated to read about this on the Washington Post. And it, it comes from a story like the ones we've been telling about. Um, a good lifelong tithing paying member of the church ran into some financial difficulties, needed help paying his mortgage. And his bishop, after examining his finances, decided $40 for food was all he needed. And this was just a couple months before the $100 billion news broke. Um, my understanding is this fellow is still an active member, uh, and he doesn't feel that there's anything attacking the church in his musical. Uh, it's just trying to question the idea of having $100 billion. Can't really speak to the story itself. There are five songs online, but um, I don't think the script is available. And uh, if you go see it in Ogden, let us know. Next quick hit. Um, any follow-ups to Minerva Taychart and the Manti Temple? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so, so that worked out great. Uh, the murals are being preserved. Um, but the church, in my opinion, learned the wrong lesson. Um, the church learned the lesson that uh, things that are beloved deserve to be preserved. And I think that's true. But I think that there was a, a secondary lesson, which was just as important, which is that themes that were built from love and from care and from great symbolic intent deserve to be preserved. Now, a few years back, the Ogden Temple was uh, essentially destroyed and turned into another boring, um, shiny box. Well, with okay. Pointy parts. I just want to jump in here. Yeah. Temples are beautiful, regardless of what shape it's in. <laughs> they can be, you can be beautiful and boring at the same time. Uh, <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and now the plan is to do the same thing to Provo. Provo's already been bowdlerized by painting it white and putting an angel Baroni on top. But Ogden and Provo, in my opinion, are two of the most interesting uh, temples that there are. They're, they're worth looking at. And I understand that even 50 years later, some people are like, eh, it's ugly. Eh. But I think that's more because it's, that's like a Utah meme is to make fun of the Provo temple. It's not because it's true. Uh, the temple is beautiful. It was designed so that um, its form would follow its function. And its form is based on Old Testament symbolism of, you know, the fire by night and the pillar by day. It, they're beautiful temples, in my opinion. And now the plan is to build a box around Provo also. Why? Well, the church, one of the stated reasons is because not enough people take their wedding photos in front of the Provo temple which I think is one of the most nonsensical reasons to change the temple ever. Um, I wrote a letter to the same people I wrote a letter to about the Teichart murals, and um, I don't think anybody else has. I think that uh, we only appreciate things that are generally agreed to be beautiful and not things that were built out of love and sacred dedication. And I think it is a tragedy that Provo is going the way Ogden is. And I don't think I can win it because it's not pretty enough to most people. And I just think that valuing prettiness is not a great value. The fact that the Provo temple is a powerful symbol should be enough. Your thoughts? Well, I appreciate you tilting against this particular windmill. Is that the right analogy? Not sure it is. Well, it is if, uh, if, I'm, uh, if I am a fool. Kicking against I this probably am kicking <laughs> against this particular prick. Kicking against the isn't that a oh I don't thing? like that one because that suggests that I'm in the wrong. Okay, what about and I'm not in the wrong? There's got to be a better. There's got to be a better <laughs> analogy. Well, I appreciate you fighting this good fight. How about that? Yeah, um, thanks. I've, I've always thought it was a weird looking temple, <laughs> and that's fine. Like, there's nothing. Why is weird bad? We're one of the weirdest churches out there. <laughs> it is true. We should have at least one temple that reflects that instead of a bunch of temples that. Just try to emphasize our prettiness. Next quick hit, quick hit. Let's talk about the devil went down to Berkeley. This is episode 2.6. Mm-hmm. I okay, what was our what do you think our conclusion was from that one? I remember the title, but I don't remember what we talked about. Was that when we talked about Satan and we went through the use of terms over the years? And yep. And we talked about how the how there's um just Lots of references to um, El Diablo in um, conference <laughs> talks, right? And the statement was, is one of the, the conclusions that we came to was that we wish that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I'm no big fan. Um, I was just reading a book review of a new biography of John Milton in the Atlantic last night. And it was interesting to me, like I, I teach... It's, that's an overstatement. I don't teach Paradise Lost. Um, I bring up Paradise Lost when I teach AP Lit to high school students. And we talk about it briefly, and I have them read about 40 lines. And we talk about how charismatic the character of Satan is and um, how delightful and attractive he is. But this book review put it into a context I hadn't really thought about before. Milton starts writing Paradise Lost after his political career has demolished, after he's been released from prison after he has gone blind. And the first few books of 
Paradise Lost are Satan flying and being joyful and being awesome and why he's one of the great characters in English literature. Um, and then Milton spends the rest of Paradise Lost dragging him down um, and making him fit into a more, um, into a smaller box. And the comparison made in the book review, which I believe therefore came from the book under review, is that Milton found himself identifying with Satan. He had flown too high and needed to be uh, punished with blindness and, and uh, homeboundness and so forth. Uh, and I had a point. Let's see if I can recall it now. <laughs> um, essentially, my kids have just, uh, that's not fair. Uh, my, my youngest son has just started showing his younger sister, Gravity Falls, Ooh. which I know is a family favorite. Love that home. show. And we just watched the episode where Mabel dates a bunch of gnomes. <laughs> that's early in the first season. That's, yeah, it. yeah. we just started like a couple days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and she is hoping that the person she's dating is a vampire. Her brother fears it's a zombie. Gravity Falls comes out around the time of sexy vampires. But the thing is, sexy vampires is sort of, that's an ongoing idea. That goes back a long time. It, goes, it predates Twilight for sure. It predates Anne Rice. And I'm a big there's, fan of it. There's something very <laughs> attractive about evil. Um, the devil is sometimes very attractive in art. Same thing with vampires. And maybe that's a reason not right there is, is enough reason not to not to be citing the devil all the time. Well, listen, uh, I'm a big fan of sexy vampires, <laughs> <laughs> but not of Twilight. I mean, I should say that. Um, but uh, the Magic the Gathering, the most recent uh, set is called uh, Crimson Vow, and it's about a vampire wedding. And the mm. art is just just knock you on your keister good. Um, I mean, you're you're into all the to 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 Mormon art. I like <laughs> art from Magic the Gathering. Um, <laughs> um, but my point is that I agree with you, but I'm wondering, okay, so everything you said was great, right? We shouldn't okay. be identifying with um we sh we shouldn't be identifying with the with the devil. That makes sense to me. Yes, thank you for summing that up because I had a really hard time arriving at my point. <laughs> but the more I look back at that episode, the more I just question whether we were right to begin with, because I haven't seen it slowing down at all. People talk about the adversary in conference talks all the time, and I hear about it in churches in church talks, even our, in our local ward, right? I feel like since we made the episode, the devil has come up more in Berkeley Ward sacrament meetings than it did previously. Right. That could be the same uh, event as buying a white Toyota Corolla and then realizing everyone owns a white Toyota Corolla. But um, I just wonder, uh, is it possible that we're wrong here? And that's what I want to question. Is, Should we talk more about the devil? Is mentioning the fact that we believe in a literal adversary, right? Um, who we can blame for some of our mistakes. <laughs> that's, Here, that's the wrong way to say it. Is I'll it... say something controversial that can go on the t-shirt. Okay. Um, 
Satan is very much like Heavenly Mother. Oh, okay. And what I mean by that is we know Satan exists. We don't really know very much about him. And so kind of everything we say is speculation designed to meet our needs. Uh We really don't know much about Satan canonically. With some history, sure. But uh, how he behaves in the day to day, I mean, other than if somebody shows up and, and offers to shake your hand and you don't touch them, like we don't know much about how the devil, you know, can he read your thoughts? Uh, most people would say no, but is that canon? No, it's not canon. Uh, we don't know. He's a mystery. And, uh, and unlike Heavenly Mother, I'm not sure it's super valuable to spend a lot of time making stuff up. Well, I don't think I have a good answer yet, but what I'm doing is when I'm, I am willing to think more about it. Um, I think that if we never had a sacrament meeting talk where the adversary was mentioned, that I could be happy living in that universe, right? Sure. I wouldn't miss him, but I'm, I'm willing to concede that there might be some value in it on occasion. I don't know if the rate at which we get it is the right rate. <laughs> which isn't a lot. I mean, let's, we're not a fire and brimstone kind of congregation. No. We mostly talk about Christ and stuff like that. He's not, he's not a starring character. No, it's pretty rare. But my question is more like any. <laughs> um, okay, that's all I have on that quick hit. Uh, just, a, okay. just, just an admission of doubt. Um, well, I will make uh, one more thing to say. Uh, and I will do this in my dual role as a member of the Berkeley Ward and as editor of Ariantum. In Ariantum's second to last issue, Joe Smith and the Devil, which is inspired by the literary work by Parley P. Pratt, which takes that name, um, I asked a number of artists to respond to that uh, writing of, of Pratt's. And a former member of our ward, Roxy Rawson, uh, currently back in her native across the pond. Oh, is she? I was missing yeah. Roxy. I was missing Roxy. Yeah, she moved back. Uh, but anyway, she recorded her original plan was well, she went through a number of plans, but for a while it looked like she was going to record a version of the Rolling Stones Sympathy for the Devil. And that's essentially what she ended up doing, but it's largely a her personal story of uh, being a member of the church and not always being treated super well by fellow members. So I would recommend that to people looking for some uh, more thinking on the devil. I'll, 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 well, the link we put in the show notes will be for the entire issue. It's not, it's not a very long issue. So check it out. And if you're into Mormon devil stuff, it's a good place to expand what's possible. And if you're done with the devil, don't touch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll definitely check it out. Um... I mean, I feel like we should have an update on Christopher Columbus, but I'm not sure what to say. Black Lives Matter, that stuff. Yeah. Um, so the White Horse prophecy is historically nonsense. Like, it's not real. Um, the idea that the Constitution will hang by a thread and a Mormon elder will save it is, um, is a bogus prophecy. But there's no doubt that it's sunk pretty deep into American Mormon culture. So it's worth um, refreshing our uh, <laughs> our understanding of what you're talking about. So yeah, so there's, there's this uh, 
non-existent prophecy. It's sort of, I don't know, it, it's the Mormon equivalent of, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say the protocols of the elders of Zion because that's like straight up horrible. Um, this is a fairly harmless example, but it's something that's, there's no historical backing for it. And yet it just sticks around. Um, the idea that the constitution will hang by a thread, a Mormon elder will save the constitution. Uh, a lot of this came up in the news when Mitt Romney was running for president. A lot of it came up in the news when Mitt Romney voted to impeach uh, or to convict. Um, what was that guy's name? Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> How lovely to forget it for a moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a real thing. However, we are at a stage in American history right now where the constitution arguably is hanging by a thread. I mean, not yet, but we'll see what happens in a couple of years. Um, legislatures, state legislatures are systematically stripping away people's rights. Um, there's a lot of straight up talk about like, it's, you know, elections only matter if they go the right direction. And there's a lot of systems being put in place to make sure that they do go the right direction. If the constitution has ever been in danger, I'll, I'll give you like a fun little um, phrasing that I read recently, that even with the Civil War, which I think we can all agree was a pretty bad time for American democracy, even with the Civil War, um, people recognized that Abraham Lincoln won the election. Nobody doubted that. That's why they left the country is because he won. Um, so we're, our crisis is a unique one, and there isn't really precedent for it. And democracies are fragile. They fall apart all the time. And I would like to know what we as American Latter-day Saints are really willing to do to save the constitution. Um, I mean, are we gonna give our kids and our grandkids American democracy or are we going to exist like Putin's state? I mean, Putin's main argument is that democracy is messy and people are unhappy under it and people are happier under an autocracy. And this isn't a crazy idea that is a fringe idea. Um, for instance, I was just watching film theory the other night and there's a film theory. Are you familiar with that YouTube channel, Aaron? I love film theory. Yeah. So there's one episode about how the empire is the best form of government of all the ones that are seen in the movies. And of Star Wars, the, I presume. Right. Of Star Wars. And the argument essentially is that uh, that's when things as a normal citizen, things were smoothest. Um, there was less chaos. And this is the basic argument of, an, of a modern autocrat is that autocracy is simpler and safer and you will be more comfortable than you would be under democracy where you have to worry about things and things are chaotic and things are always at risk of changing. Autocracy is safe. Autocracy is simple. This is, oh, speaking of the devil, mm -hmm. this sounds very much like the devil's plan. <laughs> this sounds very much like the sort of thing the Book of Mormon warns us against. And we are, you know, slouching our way to that eventuality. So I don't know exactly what the story is, but um, as far as updating our uh, Black Lives Matter episode, well, you know, making sure people can vote is a good way to demonstrate that you care about people's lives. Oh, uh, we could go back to the church cleaning thing. You only barely mentioned that in passing. I know you have more to say about that. And that would give it some circularity. Well, the only comment I had about it was um, in regard to the um, 
how difficult it is for me at the moment to justify giving up a Saturday morning to go clean the church, knowing of this endowment that the church has <laughs> of a hundred billion dollars, right? When uh, my Saturday mornings yeah. aren't too common, you know, I have to work on Saturday a few times a year and my, you know, my kids don't ever want to get up that early and I'm not getting paid. <laughs> right. No. And frankly, like, I think it was a good thing when the church paid for custodial work. There are people um, I know personally uh, in our ward who used to be paid to clean the church. Um, my own mother did that for a few years, was a church custodian. And I think there's a lot of value to that. I think, I think the reason that it was taken away, I mean, the stated reason is it's good for church members to have the opportunity to volunteer and work together and perform service and sure, sure, sure. Um, I think another unstated reason was much like members of our ward often complain about uh, facilities management. And it's not, our ward is not unique in that, but our building makes us feel a little more hoity-toity maybe. Um, but we kind of complain about the professionals in charge of our church buildings because they end up feeling like they own them more than we do. And I, I think that maybe trying to get rid of that feeling in wards was possibly another unstated reason for that. But ultimately, the number of stories that I know personally of families who survive difficult times um, through church employment working as custodians is significant. Um, I, it seems honestly like a really good way for the church to support the community is to um, pay people to clean the church. I'm, I think we should consider bringing it back. It's not that big of an expense. I mean, one of the reasons to volunteer your time, right, is to serve something. And it is nice on the Sunday after I do clean the church, which is only a couple times a year, but um, to walk through the halls and just feel, a, a, you know, a sense of happiness that I was able to contribute to the, how nice this meeting is. And that's, that's not worth nothing. I mean, that's definitely, definitely valuable, but I don't know that, I don't know that the benefit of that feeling outweighs losing a Saturday morning with my family. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure how to say this. I mean, I got to say, it feels like I'm complaining about something that doesn't matter, but uh, you know, and I'm happy to do it. Yeah. The only reason I thought about bringing it up was that I have to say the idea of the church needing this kind of service now is laughable. Sure. And there are lots of people who do need service, right? So that's, right. Ki that's kind of where I'm coming from it. It's a, we have limited hours that people are willing to dedicate to service and maybe burning them up on cleaning the church is not the best use of them. It's just interesting. I don't know that I have much more to say about that. I don't, I don't know what my opinion is either. I largely think that cleaning the church is a good thing. I think it's good for members to feel that connection to the building and it's because building is a symbol of community. And so building a connection to the building builds your community with each other, especially if you're all in it together. I'm curious what other people have to say, which is a good reason for this to be the last one we do, because I imagine pretty much everybody has an opinion on this <laughs> <laughs> and possibly just as poorly formed as our own. <laughs> um, okay. You said it was the last one, but I want to comment one more thing. Okay, uh, one what more are thing. you really, what are you really happy about for this new year's in the church? 
For the church? Oh, that's an interesting question. Like, what are you excited about for the next year? I have an idea on reimagining ministering, which I am going to pitch to the stake president this month. Um, I was just going to do it, but I have a meeting with him, so I'm going to pitch it first. And uh, I think it's safe to say that ministering is pretty broken. Um, from I mean, what the, I understand, the ministering, pro- the ministering, ministering program. program. Yeah, it's just, it's just not working. Um, home teaching for all its problems at least had um, a clear identity. Ministering doesn't even really have a clear identity. And so I have, I have an idea on how to reimagine it, and I'm going to going to see if it works. All right. So, well, I'm excited for the Old Testament. Update in a year. Oh yeah, for sure. I love the Old Testament. That's yeah. good. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um I love being in a position where we can hear uh lessons from our Berkeley Ward teachers and that are interesting and insightful. And let's yes. hear let's hear some politics and some talks about old old-timey, you know, ancient Sumeria. Let's, let's get, let's get into it, man. I'm, ex- I'm excited. It'll be great. Um, I'm going to post a link. This is to a tweet I made. My tweet is not the interesting thing. The reason I'm posting my tweet is because it's in the middle of two threads that I think are worth reading. And if you follow my thread, my, my tweet both forward and backward, you'll find the stuff that I think is interesting. So um, on the old Testament, on the old Testament and teaching it and various various methods and tools that you can use if you're a teacher or you just want to do it for yourself. All right. Um, we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. We sure uh, are. We thank Daniel Foster Smith for our music. And we, sure um, we are um, excited to be with you guys. Thanks for listening. Toodaloo.